and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm happy to welcome Peter Cousins to the program today for the first of a two-part interview. Peter is a former U.S. Foreign Service officer and a historian. He has edited or written almost 20 books, having won many awards along the way. Today, we will begin talking about the last in this trilogy of books looking at U.S. government wars against Native Americans. The first two were The Earth is Weeping, The Epic Story of the Indian Wars for the American West, and Tecumseh and the Prophet. The new one is A Brutal Reckoning, Andrew Jackson, The Creek Indians, and The Epic War for the American South, which is published by Alfred A. Knopf. Peter, how and when did the Creek people come to be in the southeast corner of what is now the United States of America? Well, the Creeks were the um, descendants of a people that are known as the Mississippi tradition Indians. They uh, were a culture of, of mound builders, and they generally lived in large towns, were fairly fairly sophisticated culture, which all, all but disappeared for all intent and purposes when Hernando de Soto passed through the Southeast on his quixotic search for gold in the American South. De Soto's expedition, the violence that he wrought, combined with pathogens that preceded him and also followed in his wake, virtually wiped out that civilization. And gradually in its stead, there grew up four Native American nations, if you will, or peoples, the Creek, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, and the Cherokee. So the Creeks, they sort of grew up, up on the ruins of the previous Mississippi tradition Indians. We really were not that clear themselves as to what they owed the culture that preceded them in, the, in their own the mythology, in their own creation stories. It was, it was rather tenuous. Since they didn't have a written record of their people. How do you go back researching and finding these primary sources for these early days? For the early days, I have to, had to rely to a large extent on, on the Spanish written records, English records, on subsequently written down accounts of Creek tradition and culture you know, taken down several generations, of course, removed from the, the actual beginnings of the Creeks. Say so it was difficult. It was it was a lot more difficult than say with some of the tribes of the American West. Nevertheless, though, there is a rich literature on Creek culture and Creek religion, Creek way of life, in which I try to immerse myself as deeply as possible. Now, once these different nations rise up with Choctaw, Chickasaw, the Cherokee, and the Creek, how did they interact with each other? Was it friendly relations, or was there quite a bit of warfare? It, it was a mix to kind of place them geographically, historically speaking, before you know significant white inroads occurred on their lands. The Cherokee were in what is you know modern day western uh, North Carolina, northernmost Georgia, eastern Tennessee. The Choctaw were in present day southern Mississippi, the Chickasaw, northern Mississippi, and the Creek Nation, which was the largest grouping of all four. They were a loose association of villages, more a loose confederacy than an actual nation. But the land they claimed encompassed 
nearly all of Georgia, I mean, all the way to the Savannah River and then west to the western border of present-day Alabama, encompassing the entire state of Alabama. So the Creek Confederacy really did occupy a large portion of the Deep South. Generally, they got along fairly well, but there was a limited strife, and the Creeks seemed to be the ones to provoke it most often. And there were conflicts with the Chickasaw, with the Choctaw, and to a limited extent with the Cherokee, but nothing on the level of you know, wars of, of extermination or annihilation. But there were tensions between the four peoples now. Initially, when the, when the Creeks were met with first the English and then later the French and also Spanish traders and government officials in the South, the Creeks tried a balancing act, tried to balance the, the various powers and play them off against one another without taking sides too obviously. That became kind of a bankrupt policy after the British defeated the French in the French Indian Wars in the 1760s. And the Creeks realized that they would have to deal with the British, not exclusively, but for all intent and purposes, because the French reach wasn't that great, nor were the French trade goods up to the standards that the Creeks had, had come to expect in trading with the British. When it comes with the intersection of cultures and civilizations, we get combinations that we haven't seen before. In America, we call that the Métis people with both European and Native American parentage. How were the Métis viewed inside the Creek culture? That's one of the most fascinating aspects of writing the book was to, to discover just how important the role of the Métis was within the, the Creek Confederacy. I never encountered that in my writings on any of the tribes in the present-day Midwest or the tribes west of the Mississippi. Unlike tribes in the North, for instance, the Creeks were a matrilineal people. So you you were a Creek or a Métis Creek, a mixed blood who could claim the privileges of a Creek based on your mother's lineage. And there, the phenomenon began with the British traders, a large percentage of whom were Scots-Irish. And they tended to intermarry with Creeks. That was a process that actually accelerated after the American Revolution when a lot of the Scots-Irish traders who were Tories, who were pro-British, sought exile within the Creek Confederacy, and so that uh, intermarriage increased. And the Metis sons of Creek women and Scots-Irish men became very important, very powerful within the Creek Confederacy. And so you had Creek leaders with Scots-Irish last names, Creek Metis leaders, who rose to the forefront of, of Creek leadership, you know, within various villages and on, on a Confederacy-wide level. The Métis, having the advantage of, of most of them of, of speaking fluent English and a good many of them of writing English as well, that gave them a plus, you know, their, their ties to, to the Scots-Irish trading concerns. That gave them quite a bit of influence over other Creeks in dealing with first the British and then with the Americans. Alexander McGillivray, he seemed to be really one that could take advantage of the situation. Oh, yeah. Alexander McGillivray, he uh, probably was the most, while he lived, he died a relatively young man, but while he lived, he was, without a doubt, the most important personage within the 20-some thousand-person Creek Confederacy. He was the son of a Scots-Irish trader and a mixed-blood mother who was from the most important clan within the Creek Confederacy, 
a clan that was considered something of nobility within the Confederacy. He was also educated in English schools on the East Coast, spoke and wrote fluent English. In fact, it seemed to me that his English was better than his Creek, and he had more more white blood than Indian blood, but because he did herald from this noble clan, so to speak, he was able, through his abilities to communicate in English, both in written form and oral form, his diplomatic skills and his family connections to rise to a position of great authority within the pre-Confederacy during the first years after the American Revolution. Did you find out why the Wind Clan were held in esteem in the culture? It goes back to a traditional pecking order of clans, and it's based on religious and, and cultural mythology. I probably have it in the book, but I don't recall off the top of my head why the Wind Clan ascended to that position of authority and nobility, so to speak, within the Creek Confederacy. In the book, you refer to the Upper Creeks and the Lower Creeks. What were the territories each had, and were there like important cultural differences between the two areas? Of course, the Creeks called themselves the Muscogees. The name Creek was bestowed on them by the, the first white traders who came in contact with them because the first Muscogees that they met lived along creeks, and the name took, and it came to refer to all, all the members of the Confederacy, and literate Muscogee, like McGillivray, came to re- refer to his people as Creeks when dealing with, with whites as well. Thus, I, I adopted that usage in, in the book. The term upper and lower Creek came from the relative location of the villages, or Talwas, as they were called, the largely autonomous villages that comprised the Creek Confederacy, derived from the location of these villages within present-day western Georgia and Alabama in relationship to the principal trading paths that the English used to reach the Creeks. Those villages that lay north and west of the path became known as the Upper Creeks, and those south to the south, southeast of the path who were closer to Georgia, closer to the traders, became known as the Lower Creeks. And from that, various significant cultural differences emerged. I imagine we could talk at length about that because uh, those really were the antecedents of the, the Creek Civil War. But in a nutshell, the Lower Creeks became more dependent upon European trade goods, were more susceptible to American attempts to introduce a wholly agricultural economy among them than were the upper creeks who were more farther removed from the the trading culture. It was amazing to see because, of course, we know the people were removed forcibly later on to see how many of these Creek Muscogee names. I remember I grew up on the border with Oklahoma and Western Arkansas and how many of these names are like Coweta and Muscogee and such. I remember seeing all over Eastern Oklahoma. And you you see them in river names, of course, in Alabama Hmm. as well. Talladega. And, right. As you mentioned, when the European start making their way further west into Georgia, the Lower Creeks start to adopt some of the ways and the technologies that the Europeans have. And it went from a very communal, above subsistence, because they did have grain stores and such, but to then adapt these European ways, methods, and technologies. It was very radical change for these people. 
It really was. It went from being, a, a, again, a, a mixed hunting and agricultural community in which the common good came first. And I speak of that in terms of villages. I, I can't stress enough that, in fact, I, the chapter in which I introduced the Creeks, I call a rope of sand because their confederacy was like a rope of sand. It was, a, it was very tenuous. Every village could act independently as it saw fit to include making war on other other peoples. It was uncommon for a large number of villages to come together for any purpose. That being said, they did share common culture and you know, common language for the most part. But the transition among the lower peaks in particular was pretty dramatic. They went from being, again, a, a uh, mixed hunting agricultural people with a strong sense of community. Each village would have uh, its, its grain stores for the common good in case you know there was a bad harvest and people were hungry they would look to support one another by the 1790s that had changed dramatically with particularly through the metis influence combination of the metis influence and the influence of the american indian agent who was trying you know seeking to convert the creeks to a way of life that would necessitate less land on their part thus freeing up more for white americans so you had to this transition from kind of a communal sense within villages to the combination of Métis and what Americans like to call euphemistically progressive Greek leaders who were looking out for themselves. They actually had slaves uh, in many cases. They began importing livestock and hogs, which more traditional-minded Creeks really objected to because of the devastation that livestock would do to communal lands white dress and they and they started putting locks on their their cabin doors they, and they looked to their own welfare over that of the uh, community so the, the changes were were pretty dramatic and the role of women began to change dramatically too largely through the efforts of an american indian agent for the for the creeks who wanted women to work less than agriculture which was their traditional role have the men take that on which was not their traditional role and have the women kind of more like American women of the time working in, in home tasks. And so there was a great deal of tension between the sexes and within, again, within the, the Greek communities at large. With the more subsistence orientation, sustainability was a priority. And for the Europeans who were just constantly expanding out and really didn't care if the land would survive, sustainability was not really an option for them. You're absolutely right. And because sustainability was not a concern, and they burned up lands, they needed to expand. One kind of fed the other. How did it affect the family structures of the creek and everything to have men trying to be forced into these traditionally what was known as women's roles by the agriculture being a man's job now? It caused a great deal of tension. And again, depending on the towel, depending on the village, uh, some creek, lower creek villages made the transition relatively easy, although almost all were loath to give up the hunt altogether. The resistance was much greater among the upper creeks, who were, again, were farther removed initially from trade with the British. And then once the United States came into being, they were farther removed from the reach of the otherwise omnipresent seeing American Indian agent for the Creeks, Benjamin Hawkins, who wanted 
you know, to make to make a wholesale change in the entire Creek culture. And he established a Creek national governing body answerable to him. But he he set up his you know his agency his headquarters so to speak within the lower Creek country and didn't do a lot of traveling among the upper Creeks particularly those in what is now in western northwestern Alabama so his his reach was strongest among the lower Creeks and that's where you you saw the the, the greatest change occur and conversely greatest resistance and the, the desire to cling to the more traditional way of life among the upper Creeks in part because their hunting lands were not not as severely affected by a combination of the changing way of life and by encroachment by Georgia's settlers, as was land of the Lower Creeks. There were a series of, of land secessions beginning in the uh, 1780s where Lower Creek land was sliced away in much of Georgia, although they retained a good third or 40% of Western Georgia all the way up to the outbreak of the War of 1812. It was Lower Creeks that felt these pressures most dramatically. More so than an incursion and just a shot straight through, what was the Federal Road? Yeah, the Federal Road it started out, the U.S. government in negotiating one of the many, many treaties with the Creeks, initially wanted to cut a postal pass through the heart of the Creek Confederacy that would go all the way to Natchez and to Mobile, the idea was to link up American land east of the Creek Confederacy with the growing American presence in the, in the uh, what is today the lower Mississippi Delta and the, the area uh, north of Montgomery. So the Creeks obliged that. The postal path was really just a narrow path cut through the woods. It was not a particularly great threat to the Creeks. But then the federal government wanted, and they bought off a lot of the Creeks, by promising that that all you know tolls that travelers would use on that postal path would be collected by creeks, that any inns or bridges that were built along the road would be controlled by the creeks and all profits would accrue to the creeks. So wealthy creeks and Matee were kind of bought off in that manner. But then as the War of 1812 and the prospect of war with Great Britain grew greater, and of course the United States now has the Louisiana Territory. The need for a military road became acute, something much wider than just a postal path, something that artillery and troops could march through handily through the Creek Nation and to, you know, to any, any threatened area uh, west of the Creek Nation, be it New Orleans or, or Natchez or whatever. That created a great deal of unrest among all the Creeks particularly the Upper Creeks, because it was it cut through their country directly. The American Indian agent negotiated it with the Creeks in bad faith. In fact, while he was negotiating for rights to construct this road, the U.S. Army was already cutting down trees and widening, widening the paths. And that was one of the, the things that really brought tension to a boil, almost. And you mentioned this postal path. Was it four feet wide? It was so incredibly narrow. It was really narrow. I mean, it was it was something that somebody on a horseback or with a small wagon could negotiate with difficulty. It was nothing at all sophisticated. There were no no corduroy roads or anything of that sort. Had to do a lot of fording of creeks. It was pretty rough. Now you said this is the last of a trilogy of looking at Native Americans and their interactions with the American government and dispossession of their lands. 
how frustrating is it to look back and see our government and the way they dishonorably acted so many times to the people who were here first? I, you know, I don't know which of the three books is more heartbreaking. I, I began the trilogy with chronologically backward because when I wrote the first book in the trilogy, The Earth is Weeping, the Epic Wars for the American West. I intended that to just be a standalone book on the Indian Wars of the West. And then I realized that I, I really couldn't do justice to the larger subject or to really the inevitability of what happened in the West without looking at what happened north of the Ohio River in the late 18th and early years of the 19th century through the War of 1812, and then, of course, in the American South at the same time period through the Trail of Tears, because it was those conquests, those defeats that really opened up the United States, uh, East Mississippi to settlement and made what happened beyond the Mississippi and the American West sort of inevitable. It was heartbreaking writing these three books because I mean, there wasn't a treaty that at some point or another we didn't break or not honor in its in its fullness. And there was not a single so-called Indian war or Indian conflict, which was a consequence of Indian bad faith or, or Indian aggression. They all had as the root causes white encroachment, white aggression, and white American government lack of fulfillment of treaties. And it wasn't like it was the uniform idea of white Americans at the time. You write about John Quincy Adams and his just utter frustration with the way it's being pursued. The utter banality of, of policy, the hypocrisy of it, the, the lies that were told the Indian tribes. In Adams' case, what most horrified him was the, the uprooting of, of the Chickasaw Creek, Cherokee, and Choctaw and the Trail of Tears in the 1830s and how these, these people were already, by the 1830s, they were, they were integrating fairly nicely into the, you know, American way of life. There was no need to uproot them except that their lands, particularly the Creeks, land which was occupied the so-called uh, Black Belt, they were some of the, the best con-producing land of the South, stood in the way of avaricious of white settlers, white farmers, plantation owners. And so he, he was horrified by the by the poor face shown by the U.S. government in, in uh, expelling them. Well, it was interesting to see that Tecumseh plays a small role in the story and that even though he wasn't involved in this war, someone with his name would subjugate the South 50 years later. That's a good point. <laughs> That's a good point. But yeah, William Tecumseh Sherman, his, uh, his birth name was Tecumseh Sherman. His father gave him that name in honor of Chief Tecumseh who came down to the Creek country in 1811 just as that treaty was being rammed down their throats, whereby they agreed to the federal road, sort of federal Creeks trying to bring the Creek into his northern Indian Confederacy. Didn't have a lot of success, but he did help stir up a lot of the simmering unrest among the upper Creeks sort of propelled the creation of a prophetic movement among the Upper Creeks that led to a civil war and a war with the United States. And I think you're talking about the Red Sticks. And what is the implement, the Red Stick, and who were the Red Sticks? By the end of 1812, most of the Upper Creeks, early 1813, most of the Upper Creeks were, were fed up with the United States and with what they saw to be the inevitability of, of American encroachment on, on, if not their physical lands, at least uh, on their way of life. And the Red Sticks 
were those who rose up under the leadership of Greek and Metis prophets. And you have to understand that among tribes, particularly tribes east of Mississippi, but among all American Indian tribes, those who were recognized as legitimate prophets, that is to say, those who were believed to have a direct channel to the to the great spirit, to the master of life, to God, prophets exercised a great deal of influence, tremendous influence among, among the different Indian peoples. And these prophets and their followers were known as red sticks because they adopted it as their symbolic implement of war and also of their movement essentially was sort of like a large boomerang. It was a traditional club, a war club or stick painted red that was used by the Greeks in battle as a battle implement. That tradition went back the long way. Red was, was the color of war. And so the red, the red sticks adopted that as their own, as their own peculiar symbolic emblem, as well as one of their principal war-making weapons beside, of course, the musket and the bow and arrow. I thought it was interesting that oftentimes the red stick was made out of hickory. <laughs> That's a good point. That hadn't occurred to me, but uh, old hickory, Andrew Jackson, and the red stick's made of hickory. Good point. <laughs> Ironic. It was almost like it was destined to go against each other. Oh, yeah. What were the differences in between the Creek Talwas that led to the Civil War, and what effect did that have on the later war with the American government? Uh, the, the Civil War really was between, although there were exceptions, there were some Upper Creek Talwas that either were neutral or, in fact, whole villages fled into the Cherokee country to escape the Civil War. And there were a, a few lower creeks who joined the Red Stick movement. But generally speaking, it was a civil war between the Upper Creeks and the Lower Creeks. How can I put it? The most uh, radical of the Red Stick or the most traditionally minded Greeks, depending on how you want to look at it, were those who were farthest removed, again, from the American influence, those in, West, in western Alabama, along the western reaches of the, of the Alabama River, the Kosovatis and the Alabama peoples. The Civil War, it really broke out on the question of whether to give in to this seemed to be a incessant American demands for for, for greater access to the Creek country, for for changes in the Creek way of life versus those who wanted a traditional way of life and also saw in Tecumseh his alliance in the in Midwest and the successes they were having with their British allies in fighting the Americans, a kind of a model by which they could conquer not only all of the Creek country, but perhaps even, even push its boundaries into what land that formerly had belonged to the Creeks. So a civil war broke out between the upper and lower creeks. Initially, actually, the, the civil wars among upper creek powers, the, the red sticks consolidated their power and then turned their sights on on lower creek towers. And a civil war played out in the early months of, of 1813. And initially, the United States government sort of kept a, a, a hands off approach to it officially, although there was a great deal of tension when some of the returning Upper Creeks who had been fighting with Tecumseh against the Americans massacred settlers in Tennessee and also killed a couple of travelers on the federal road 
that caused a great deal of tension and it caused a lot of uproar in the state of Tennessee to actually invade the Creek country and lay waste to the Upper Creek Catawas. But the uh, government Indian agent, Benjamin Hawkins, was able to prevail upon so-called friendly Lower Creeks to mete out justice against those who perpetrated these, quote, outrages, unquote, and hunted them down and killed them in a way that was not in accordance with traditional Greek law, which actually just further exacerbated the hostility between the Lower Greeks and the Red Sticks. Well, Peter, we just have barely scratched the surface, of course. So would you come back for another episode so we can discuss more and get Andrew Jackson into the discussion? I'd be delighted to. Peter Cousins is the author of A Brutal Reckoning, Andrew Jackson, The Creek Indians, and The Epic War for the American South, which is published by Alfred A. Knopf. Please come back next time as we conclude our conversation. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.